Well, a number of years ago, uh, Psychology Today interviewed probably a person you know of. His name is Larry King. And he's the great interviewer on CNN. And Mr. King, as we know, has certainly done well in his business. There is probably no interviewer as good as Mr. King. So Psychology Today asked them the question, why are you so good at it? And listen to what he said. Because I'm sincere. I'm really curious. I care what people think. I listen to answers and leave my ego at the door. I don't use the word I, which is irrelevant in an interview. It has no place other than showing off. Now, if you were a careful listener, you'd have to say how ironic Mr. King's statements were. He doesn't use the word I, but before he said it, he used it five times in the sentence in two lines. You see, Mr. King is indeed a great interviewer. Many people turn into him. But however, it's interesting is that he focuses on himself, except, or, or, I'm sorry. However, it's interesting is that he focuses on himself, except in his own eyes. You see, he's blind to something. He talks about how I don't use the word I, but he just used it five times before. Sometimes when we go through life, we can be very sincere. And I don't doubt Mr. King was in this, but his idea of other centeredness was sort of vague. He really didn't see how much he was focused on himself versus others. And so he was sincere, but was mistaken. And I don't believe Mr. King is alone. You see, I think Americans right now have this great thinking that if we are sincere about something, we're okay. We're fine. If we just understand a person's heart. And there's nothing quite wrong with that. It's important to be sincere. But does that completely relate to our relationship with God and our worship that we bring before Him? Of course, no one would want to bring counterfeit worship to God or something where it's unauthentic. But is authenticity the criteria of worship to God? I think that's what we begin to deal with here in the book of Malachi. You see, the great temptation is for us to evaluate our worship based on our eyes versus on God's eyes. And obviously the priests at Malachi's time evaluated their worship as pleasing to God. But Malachi had a different message for them. And I know this morning we we see Larry King and we see other people out there, but I wonder if many of us have this same type of worship with God that can be like these priests were having, private, authentic, but ambiguous in how it relates to God. And what's interesting is as I deal with this text today is it first and foremost deals with me as a minister. Is my worship the way God wants it to be because he challenges and he speaks directly to the priest. But obviously it's not limited just to me. It's limited to all of us. So there's three problems that I point out in your notes there that I have before you, and we're going to look at the first problem. Problem number one is we want worship in our terms, not in God's terms. This has been a problem throughout the history of mankind. The Bible alludes to that numerous times. But but Malachi says it this way. 
A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? And if I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Notice God's challenge. He asks the questions, where is my honor and where is my respect? Now, honor, just I'm going to probably state the obvious for many of you, but we'll, we'll just go through this. Honor is that idea, or we get it from the Hebrew word, to mean something heavy or weighty. In the Air Force, we write emails all the time. But if you write someone who's higher ranked than you, you're supposed to end it with these little things. VR. Why VR? What well, means very respectfully. If you don't, as my boss illuminated to me, you might not notice it, but they notice it. Because it is the honor you're supposed to give them because they are a higher rank of you or than you. That's what God's getting at here is honor. There's a weight that, that he carries that's higher than everyone else. Next, he talks about the word respect. And this word of respect is used 12 times. And it means this, a fearful thing, reverence or to fear. Kingship back in those days had a whole different idea of how we have it in these days of people with power and authority. We remember the story of Esther, where Esther was fearful to walk in to the king's courtroom because if she did and the king did not accept her to come in, she could immediately be killed and there would be no questions asked. Our boardrooms today are not quite that heavy. But that's the idea God is communicating. And then he uses those words, these words here, master, someone who has authority and someone we're not always able to escape from their power, someone who we ought to respect and fear because who they are, there's that idea of servanthood to them. But then there's a fourth word that speaks to us, and that is the word father. And obviously, it's a very timely word for today. So we deal with Father's Day, but the difference of respect and fear here is the intimacy. The difference between a, a master and a father isn't that connection. A father assumes that there's a deeper level of relationship. One that you can talk about because you carry the same bloodlines with them. You know, when I was growing up, my dad uh, had to get out of the military. He was rifted out in the late 70s. He had 16 years in, so he did reserve duty. And so he was definitely gone at least one weekend in a month for about 10 years during my uh, boyhood growing up. And I had a little brother, Gary. Well, he's actually my little big brother. Some of you all might be able to relate. He's younger, but he's bigger. And so that made a lot of good fights for mom to put up with. But there was a phrase on those weekends when my dad would be go, go home that got our attention when other words did not. You've probably heard this phrase as well. When your father gets home, he's going to hear about it. There was something about those words that Gary and I knew, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And if you've heard those words before too, you know, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Because, you know, not to go anything against my mom, she held her own in disciplining us, but there was something different when Dad came home. In my house, my parents' house, uh, we have a long hallway right down the middle of the hallway, and we had a basement below that. There was a a, a remarkable difference in how my mom would walk down the hallway versus how my dad would walk down the hallway. And you could hear those feet coming. 
You see, there's something about reminding the fatherhood of God that we love the intimate side of it, but sometimes we forget the respect side of it. And I think that's what Malachi's reminding the Israelites. Because see, when my dad came home, one thing I appreciated about my dad, I didn't at the time, but I appreciate now, is he wouldn't let us get away with stuff. He loved us too much to allow us to get away with stuff. Now, was there grace and mercy? Sure, there should be that in the home. But there also should be justice and there also should be faithful disciplining. And that's the one thing I loved about my dad later now that I have kids. It made me appreciate his care because he loved me enough not to where I wouldn't keep doing the wrongs that I did. That was one of the great roles of a dad. Our Heavenly Father is much like that, except the great thing about Him, or should I say the challenging thing about Him, is He's always around. You know, there was always times each of us could pull stuff over Dad, and it only happened when Dad wasn't around. My brother and I were usually at our worst when Dad was gone to reserve duty. And why was that? We all know the old saying, don't we? While the cats are away, the mice will come out and play. We can all relate to that. But the reality is, is that Malachi had to remind these priests, dear brothers, your heavenly father is around all the time. And even though you don't see him, you don't feel him. May I remind you, his footsteps are near. And he will come with disciplining action. Jesus said this in Luke 8, verse 17, For nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to the light. I think a question I and you must ask ourselves as we look at this text is, is there anything we're trying to get away with in our worship to God? Is there anything we're trying to hide that God knows and we know He knows but maybe we're hiding it from others. Paul said it this way, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will reap from the flesh. He will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. See, dear friends, God is not fooled. True worship gives God the honor and the respect internally as well as externally to Him. And that is the calling Malachi gives us here at the beginning. A second problem we have is that we give God much less than our best. Verses 7 and 8 speak about this as the priest placed defiled food on the altar. Look at the text. It says, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Look at the priests. They're defending themselves like we all do when we're accused of something we're guilty of. We always try to defend ourselves, don't we? But the priest, but Malachi says, but you ask, how have we defiled you by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible when you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals? And then he adds these words. Is that not wrong? In other words, he appeals to their very knowledge that they should know Offering crippled animals is wrong. And obviously the Israelites knew that. In Deuteronomy 15 verse 21 it says, But if any animal has defects such as lameness or blindness or serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. 
And I think what Malachi is doing here and what I entitled this sermon is providing a mirror. Mirrors help us to see our imperfections. It's an important part of a woman's day. It's somewhat an important part of a man's day. It's what we look at before we go out the door to inspect ourselves. And Malachi provides this mirror to the priests to help them to see their imperfections. So how does Malachi provide the mirror to the priests? Well, one, God rebukes their contempt for his name. Obviously, they were capable of giving better. Look what he says to him uh, later on. He says, try offering that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? It's kind of fun to see how the biblical writers use sarcasm. It's like, come on, guys, you're not fooling anybody. Secondly, there's a misplaced priority. There's a principle of the lesser of the greater. In other words, if you you should give your governor glory, which is a whole lot lesser than God, why aren't you giving God greater glory? He has a much higher inspection than your governor. And then they also forgot whose people they were. Remember how we began the book of Malachi? He reminded them that you are my chosen people. No other nation deserved that blessing. And yet just because they were God's chosen people does not give you the privileges to break God's rules. In fact, there should be a higher calling upon you. We see this sometimes happen uh, with the blessings of children who have parents that are extremely wealthy. And they're given great blessings. And they feel like, well, I can get away with it because, hey, mom and dad's always there. The money's always there. But they don't forget that there's a God who blessed their mom and dad with the gifts and talents to give them the gifts in order that they should honor God. That's where we often see that. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do you know if you're giving honor and respect that God deserves? Well, let me say something first. This side of glory, none of us will give Him perfect worship because we're on this side of glory. We are fallen short. We're sinful. Even though through Christ, some of our works can be glorifying to God, but it is only through Christ that those works can be glorifying to God. So I realize, please hear me, I'm not advocating a perfectionist gospel. But I am advocating is what God calls us each to give what He calls us to give, and that is our best and our worship to Him. We should strive at this. We shouldn't say, well, that look, that's pretty good. Or as my dad used to say, that's good enough for government work. You know, there's a sense that who are we doing this for? And who He calls us to. So Malachi puts this mirror in front of them. Do you give your governor the same treatment you do me? Maybe we should ask ourselves that question. What does your boss expect from you? To be on time, to be prepared, to work to please him? That when you speak of him or her, you're not trashing his name, but you're building them up? One thing I've learned in the military as I've been on active duty two years is one thing that gets you in a lot of trouble quick is if you make your boss look bad. Maybe I missed it out in the, sec- the world outside the military. But, but in the military, there's a, since I've been in the Air Force, there's been a whole lot greater emphasis on that. 
Because you can be sure the stick is coming if you've made your boss look bad. It is just that simple. And I think there's a sense that we forget that as Christians, we excuse ourselves sometimes. We know that God forgives us and there's nothing wrong to be thankful for God's forgiveness. But sometimes we use that forgiveness thing as an excuse thing rather than viewing it with fear as David talked about in Psalm 130. There is forgiveness with thee that thou should be feared. We should not trample lightly on God's forgiveness and we must honor Him as we even honor Him greater than our bosses. Well, there's another problem. You see, God rebuked their false peace that they had with Him. Look at verse 9. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will He accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. You see, God is rebuking this false sense of peace that the priests and the people had with God. And He's asking them a rhetorical question. So we say in the South, are string beans green? Obvious answer is yes. But Malachi's mirror is to show the priests and people they were deceiving themselves. They thought they had peace with God. And Malachi is saying, hey, guys, you don't have peace with me. And I think for all of us, it's helpful to remember Jeremiah's words, which are true of every single one of us and all mankind, that the heart is more deceitful than anything else. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts want to trick us into thinking we have something when we do not. And so we need to do inspection based on the principles of the Word of God so we can see if we really have that peace of God that we're so desiring. One of my favorite people to read was a guy named John Owen. Some of you might know John Owen. He was probably the Puritan theologian from the English Isle. In his great book on the mortification of sin, he spoke a lot about this whole idea of false peace. And listen to what he said. Concerning God dealing with our sin and our guilt in respect to its root and indwelling or in respect to any eruptions of it, take heed that thou speakest not peace to thyself before God speaks it, but hearken what he says to your soul. You see, it's not that God does not want us to give us peace. And we just talked about the peace we can have in our confession of sin. But often our problem is, is that we speak peace to ourselves before God has completely dealt with our sin within our soul. We sort of want to wash it away and say, hey, it's okay. And move on than to really contemplate and think about the seriousness of our guilt before God. How do we know if it's God's peace or not our own? Well, let me tell you, here's how you know it's God's peace and not your own. First of all, our peace must be accompanied by our own hatred of sin. If you are convicted by a sin and you just say, I'm sorry, but you're going back and you really, you're not hating it, but you're thinking about going back to that act that you just did in rebellion to God, I would, I would say to you that peace that you might be feeling really isn't there. It's mainly you trying to placate it. I talk to my kids about this a lot when they apologize to one another. As a parent, you can probably write. There's the apology where it's like this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then they go on and do what they do. One of the things I try to work, Amber and I try to work with Eliza and Jude, is when you say you're sorry, you need to tell the other person what you're sorry for. 
And then end with these words, will you forgive me? We try to do that so that they can see that there is guilt on their hands and it must be made correct with God. Now, obviously, please now hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the formula is what makes it work, but the formula helps force them to think, I have something wrong and it's not something I can just callously say, I'm sorry and go on with my business. So we need to have a hatred of sin, a hatred of an understanding of that we have done wrong. Secondly, peace must not be spoken slightly. Jeremiah 6.14 says this, The false prophets dress and wound my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Um, a number of years ago, excuse me, a number of years ago I was in college and I, God was just coming into my life. It was my junior year. Uh, school was ending at Western Kentucky University. By the way, home of the Hilltoppers. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it was the end of the year and God was working in my life. And there was two guys I worked with that I knew just in my heart God wanted me to talk to them. One, uh, I knew God wanted me to share the gospel with them. I just knew it. It was in my heart. It was just burdening me constantly. And then second was a, a, a guy who, who very much talked about how he was a Christian, but it was very well known that he was sleeping with his girlfriend. And I knew that was wrong. And I knew no one else was saying anything to say, hey, you need to stop this. You are living out an inconsistent testimony before the Lord. Well, that's... Uh, spring rolled around. It was right at the end of the school year. And uh, honestly, I chose not to do that. I was afraid of what um, Gary, who was the non-Christian, would share with me because I wanted it to look cool in front of him. And JT, I was afraid that he would get angry at me if I, I talked to him about this problem of immorality. Well, I got in my Nissan Sentra, packed up the car and took off home. I was jamming uh, to Leonard Skinner at the time. And if you've ever been to Bowling Green, Kentucky, there's a reason why uh, the Western Kentucky University folks are known as the Hilltoppers. Our school is built on a massive hill. At the top of the hill, as I was coming up over the ridge, it had slightly rained. And back in those days, they've changed it because they realize how dangerous it is now. But you come down this quick curve and immediately you got to go left or right. You cannot go straight. Well, I hit my brakes because I was, again, jamming to Leonard Skinner at that point. And uh, I went hydroplaning right across that intersection, was going way too fast, couldn't stop my car, went across the speed bumps, and I was broadside for incoming traffic. By God's grace, there wasn't a single car coming. But when you have something like that happen, your heart gets racing. The adrenaline's pumping. So I was like, Phew, thank you. Got in the car, started driving. Later, as I was going home down down the Bluegrass Parkway, which is a, a sort of interstate type of road, I was changing channels on my radio station. I looked up on an interstate going about 65, 70 miles an hour, and lo and behold, there is a crate right in the middle of the road. Uh, I swerved to get out of that way. Again, the heartbeat is racing. It was about that point in time that I turned the radio off. I just needed to be calm and gather myself. And I heard that little quiet voice sometimes you hear in your head called the Holy Spirit. 
And it was these, I, I just, I know, I know, well, I'll get on there another time. Anyways, God was saying to me, you know, when I say I want you to go talk to someone, it's not a request. It's a direct order. I want you to do what I call you to do. And what had I done, men and women? I had spoken peace to my soul. Oh, it's not that big a deal. Someone else will talk to him about Christ. Yeah, he'll realize, you know, he, sh- he shouldn't quit sleeping with God. Maybe he'll hear it in church. Dear friends, part of our jobs as brothers and sisters in Christ is to speak truth. We are to be salt and light. And we need to be graciously, humbly, recognizing our own sin, but it's our jobs to do that. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, better is open rebuke than hidden love. I was choosing hidden love. I was choosing false peace with God. I was saying to God, you know what? I hear what you're saying, but I'm okay. You can figure someone else to deal with this. Friends, are you speaking any false peace to God right now? Is there something He is calling you to do that you are not following His direct command to in your life? I don't know what it is, but I'm sure you know what it is. Be careful to not speak false peace to your life. Owen marks out a third thing. He says, there is no peace when we live in sin. Listen to what this great Puritan said. God will justify us from our sins, but He will not justify the least sin in us. Did you hear that? God will justify us from our sins, but He will not justify the least sin in us. He is a God of a pure eyes than to behold iniquity. He loves us too much. Dr. Bright, the past president of Campus Crusade, used to say there are no happy, disobedient Christians. Dear friends, there is no true peace. It is a false peace, you can be sure, if there is some sin that you are hiding in your heart that you have not gotten right with the Lord about. And what I mean by that is restoring that fellowship with Him. I understand our relationship is secure through Christ. That lasts for all eternity. Once we're in Christ, we're in Christ for all eternity. But what I'm talking about is your fellowship. If I tell my dad, Dad, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and you can just go stick your head in the mud, he's still going to be my dad at the end of the day. But he's not going to be happy with me. And that's an understatement. We must be careful not to speak peace to us, ourselves when we live in sin. And fourthly, God's peace is a humbling peace. When David was told by Nathan that God forgave his sin, he was deeply humbled. Remember what he did? He fasted and prayed for the child. Every time we realize God forgives our sin, it helps us to grow in humility. So the questions we need to ask ourselves if we go through a life is, is our peace with God based on his terms or is it based on our terms? if we pursue the peace that God gives us, the greatness about it is it's true peace. And with that true peace comes joy. Abundant joy. Because there is no thrilling, or there's probably no greater joy to know that our guilt has been appeased, covered, forgiven, and we can hold hands with the God of grace. The One who has everything against us. So we give God less than our best in three ways. We show contempt for His name. We seek false peace rather than true peace. But then there's a third that Malachi points out, and that's a lack of obedience in verse 10. 
Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Notice what God wants. He doesn't want sacrifice. He wants obedience. And throughout our life, throughout the history of, or throughout human history, we have constantly tried to appease God through sacrifice rather than obedience. Samuel said it to Saul this way, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Our great temptation, my great temptation, your great temptation is to placate with God how to appease God through something we can provide Him through sacrifice. And what God is wanting is not sacrifice. He wants our hearts. Remember what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's that relationship with Him that motivates us to obey what He says. That is so precious. And notice twice in this passage, God asked through Malachi, will I accept you? You see, the lie that they were believing is that God will accept the gift. But God's judgment was, I will accept no gift from your hands. And how hardened were the priests and the Israelites to God's commands at this time? They had to be reminded that that only through punishment they would change. So if our actions are not matching God's standards of worship, we must realize God is not bound to accept our offerings to Him. In other words, He's not bound to accept them or even bless us for the gifts we bring Him. They also uh, forgot how God Himself provides the motivation of worship. Look lastly at the tail end of our passage this morning, how the Lord describes Himself. He describes Himself the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And this is used 23 times in this whole book. And the Lord of hosts is a military term. It means, in the sense, the Lord and His armies. And so, God is wanting them to recognize, hey, these rulers and these armies that you give honor to, don't forget who I am. Don't forget I have my army. And God wanted to also make sure that they didn't give in to the great sin of presumption. He tells them there that His name will be great. And sort of the caveat is, with or without you. I don't need you to be great. And the great presumption by the Israelites was, you know what, we'll be great because we're God's people. It's that great sin of presumption. But God lets them know, you don't have a corner on me. Your blessing does not stop on the borders of Israel. No, he goes on to say that my name will be great among the nations and from the rising to the setting sun, every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations. We need to be careful not to be presumptuous like these priests were at this time of how they thought, well, we're part of God's family. It'll be okay. He'll accept us. I like what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, we must stop going through the motions and refuse to play church or do whatever it takes to keep the fire burning. The great temptation is to live on what Chuck Swindoll calls $3 worth of God. He writes that some of us would love to buy $3 worth of God. 
Listen to this, church. Not enough to explode your soul or disturb your sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of eternal in a paper sack. I want $3 worth of God, please. These were some of the problems the priests were having. And dear friends, we can have that same presumption with God, can we not? You and I can want $3 worth of God. Just enough to have that warm fuzzy. Just enough to feel good or have the chill bumps. But what God wants is all of us. And He wants us to realize that His plan is much bigger than us. And He's going to get worship wherever He wants to get worship. And ultimately, we know that He has gotten that worship He wants. And thankfully, it happened through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because in Him, God gave us the example, the perfect example of perfect worship. Christ's whole life was a testimony of worship. In His obedience to the commands, in His willingness to suffer and die on the cross, in His willingness to raise from the grave so that He might bring a bride with Him to present for His Father spotless. That is what Jesus did for us. He was the perfect sacrifice. And it's interesting we use this verse in our confession because I had it in my sermon. You see, Jesus who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. It is through Christ that we see the perfect example of the worship God wants. And that is what we cling to, dear friends. And it's as He does inspection on us through the Holy Spirit and as we claim and confess our sins to Him and we hang on to Christ and when we go into worship, we don't give God excuses. We don't give God, well, I'm sorry, but we leave the butt monkey, as Laura Ingram says, out of it. We own what's ours. And we say, I deserve it. I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me from the inside out? That way through that forgiveness, when we do bring sacrifices through prayers or when we do bring offerings through our works and our labor, God finds that pleasing and honoring to Him. And that's where, like He said to Cornelius, your gifts have risen to a memorial to me. That is the worship God wants from us, dear friends. And that's the reminder Malachi gives to the priest. He gives to me is do I cling to Christ? Or do I look at my talents and skills or my works or how I word things? Or is it with Christ that I come before? That was the Apostle Paul's thing. Remember? Remember the book of Corinthians? He didn't come before that church with eloquent words or anything like that. He hung on to Christ crucified. And that is what we are to hang on to Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Malachi's words and we ask, Lord, that You would remind us to uh, find our significance in Christ. That our worship might be pleasing through Christ. And Lord, if there's areas where we didn't speak, we're speaking false peace to our souls, where we're presenting uh, things to You that are not honoring, that we would give more honor to our own earthly bosses than You, I pray that You would convict us and You would make us aware of it. 
And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.